Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. I was uh, lined up on the catapult and uh, just as the catapult fired, uh, one of my engines blew up. And uh, strangely enough, the Navy didn't train you very much for these sort of emergencies. So um, here I was with an engine pouring out smoke, and I didn't realise it was also pouring uh, flames out the uh, back of the jet pipe. The voice there of QAM volunteer and guide, Noel Dennett recounting a particularly hairy incident during his Navy career operating off aircraft carriers. More of that story in a few minutes. Hello and welcome to this episode of Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum, Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills and I'm happy to say that I am a QAM volunteer. We're all volunteers at QAM. And I might just say, we are very keen to recruit new volunteers at present. Coming out of the past couple of years of the pandemic, we are gearing up again for full operation and we do need more volunteers, be it in customer service, greeting visitors on the front counter, or on one of our restoration teams working on a particular project, or in the engine workshop, or in our huge library, or the artefact collection, or even property maintenance. Please consider making contact and having a chat to one of us about how much fun it is working at QAM and how satisfying it is to be part of such an important enterprise, a people's museum seeking to preserve Australia's aviation heritage. Get in touch through our website and let us know if you're interested. Now, in this Meet the Guides episode, I had a great conversation with QAM guide Noel Dennett. Noel has had a long and varied flying career, and as you'll hear, and as he likes to quip, there have been several attempts on his life, including that engine explosion while launching off an aircraft carrier in the South China Sea. All of these attempts, by the way, he has managed somehow to survive. I hope you enjoy this fascinating introduction to Noel Dennett. So I'm standing at the Queensland Air Museum, way up the back, as you might call it, if you come in through the front counter, where we have a number of fascinating aircraft. And I'm standing with a man who has very personal experience uh, of the aircraft that we're standing with. I'm standing with one of our tour guides, Noel Dennett. G'day, Noel. G'day. Thank you for joining me. Yes, it's great great to be here with you, standing under this most fascinating yeah. aircraft. Why don't you describe for our listeners what this aircraft is and why it is so amazing? Okay, well, the, uh, it's called a Fairy Gannet. Uh, it's a Australian, well, it's a naval aircraft uh, designed in Britain. Uh, the Australian Navy used them on uh, HMAS Melbourne, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, Seeing as how the Melbourne was uh, a light fleet carrier in World War II, uh, these things were a very, very substantial problem to us uh, insofar as the ship was small and these are pretty big. Now, the uh, aircraft itself was designed uh, to a specification that was put out in 1943 uh, for a turbine-driven 
anti-submarine patrol aircraft for the Royal Navy. And uh, the reason they wanted it was because they knew they were going to get jet fighters and they wanted to get uh, um, Avgas out of their carriers because Avgas uh. is very volatile and uh, during the war there were a couple of carriers that survived the battle but sank afterwards because of Avgas explosions yeah. on board. Right. So uh, that was the reason for having this sort of, sort of slightly complicated uh, uh, aircraft. It has an absolutely unique engine. Uh, it's got two turbine engines sitting side by side in the nose. The left-hand engine drives the front propeller and the right-hand engine drives the back propeller. These are the, mam- the Mambas? The double right? Mamba, it yeah. was called. Yep. And um, <clears throat> in cruise, you could shut one engine down and cruise on one to save fuel. Because both propellers are in line? Yes, both propellers are, are lined up. So uh, you didn't have quite so much of a torque problem as you would do if they were out on the wing. Um, the aircraft has an unusually large bomb bay, which means that it looks rather tubby. And uh, <clears throat> it has... Uh, the other feature was that because of the small size of the lifts in the, the uh, British carriers, uh, again it's got what they call bifold wings. The, uh, the wing folds in two places and uh, we're always regarded by the Air Force people as being absolutely nuts to fly around in aeroplanes <laughs> where the wings folded up. Is that unique, the bifold wings? Is that unique to the Gannet? Yes, the, the, both the, uh, the double member uh, power plant set up and the, uh, uh, the bifold wings were unique to the Gannet, nothing else had them. As you say, it is an interesting-looking aircraft. Some might say not attractive, others might think it's beautiful, but it is quite chubby, and it has that really bizarre-looking double propeller. It has three canopies, so was it a crew of three? We carried a crew of three. In in the Navy, if you weren't a pilot, didn't matter what you did, they called you an observer. Uh, So I used to carry uh, a crew of two observers. The guy in the front seat used to be the sort of navigator, tactical tactical navigator, and uh, uh, he had a, a radar indicator. And because we used to drop what they called sonar boys into the water to listen for submarines, the guy in the back seat, who incidentally rode looking backwards, um, he, he used to also have a radar um, uh, presentation as well as the sonar boy presentation, so he could... Uh, monitor what was going on on the sonar boys. So he he was not a gunner, as it might you <laughs> might you might immediately think with a turret at the back. No. He was working with the navigation and the sonar boys. We we were way out at sea. We sort of worked on the assumption that gunnery wasn't going to be a, a, a <laughs> major uh, requirement. So what was the purpose of this this particular aircraft? It was the Australian navies or the navies. Uh, anti-submarine and maritime patrol aircraft and uh, this is one of the reasons why it can in fact carry such a hell of a lot of ordnance. Mm-hmm. Um, we could carry uh, you know obviously a Bombay full of uh, uh, sonar boys but we could also carry homing torpedoes, um, uh, bombs up to uh, 500 pounders uh, and uh, 
you can't see it here because but you see the series of, of uh, hulls in the wing yes, there yes. well they're for attaching rocket rails right. and uh, we used to be able to carry 16 uh, 60 pound high explosive rockets which I can tell you makes a big hole <laughs> but, but the first thing I'm thinking of is how heavy is this thing and you're taking off from a carrier <laughs> That must have made for some very interesting and, and uh, challenging flying. Am I wrong? Uh, naval flying was fairly challenging, but uh, once you got used to it, it was a, really a lot of fun, uh, except at night. I never got to the stage where I could enjoy it much at night. <laughs> but um, by day, once you got used to the, the, the the most exciting thing, actually, was the launch because yeah. the catapult on the Melbourne was only 30 metres long and you started off at nothing and you finished up at 220 <laughs> kilometres an hour. 30 metres later. <laughs> 30 metres later. <laughs> so, uh, um, and did you fly this particular one, 859? 859 was the aircraft I was flying the first time I embarked on the Melbourne. Oh. So it's got a bit of history for me. Wow. <laughs> so what year are we talking? Uh, 1961 which is probably the time to ask you about your aviation background. We may come back to the Gannett, and I know we're going to look at another aircraft while we're here, but you're a guide here at the QAM, and you have an extensive history uh, in aviation. Give us the uh, the short version, because it's a long, long story. <laughs> it, is, it is, in fact, a very long story, Gary, but I was born in 1934, and uh, I wanted to fly aeroplanes as soon as I knew what an aeroplane was. Wow. I uh, spent five months in hospital when I was five years old uh, with uh, osteomyelitis and had eight operations. And one of the things that my parents bought me to, uh, uh, to try and keep me occupied was a, a metal model, bolt-together model aeroplane. And uh, I did everything with this thing. If I bolted the whole lot together, it made a tiger moth. Okay. Uh, but I could make four-engine bombers and <laughs> anything I liked out of it. Well, you know, with certain suitable bits of plasticine. <laughs> um, I was obviously only a child during the war, and I was born and raised in Griffith, in central New South Wales. So I uh, used to go out the, the uh, RAF training field at Narandra, had a satellite field at Griffith and I used to go out and watch the guys in their tiger moths going around doing circuits and bumps and wish that I was one of them. <laughs> and uh, I really didn't ever think that I'd uh, learn to fly, but what happened was when I was 17 I applied to join the Navy as a pilot and uh, didn't make it. And uh, so I did a, a bit of a dummy spit rode my bike across to Moorabbin Airport, <laughs> joined the Royal Victorian Aero Club and started learning to fly. At your own expense? At my own expense. And think about this, wow. I was earning £5.10 a week and it was costing £3.15 an hour. <laughs> you were keen. <laughs> well, I was keen. I was really driven. Um, I finished up uh, getting to the stage where I had a commercial pilot's licence and an instructor's rating and nobody would give me a job. And then I was very, very fortunate to make it into the Australian Navy. The reason for that was because I was married. And the Air Force wouldn't take you if you were married. Oh. <laughs> the Navy would. You did all the same training, but anyway. That's the Air Force's loss. 
Well, I thought so. Uh, but anyway, um, I can't say that I would complain about uh, a, you know, life of naval aviation because it's fairly unique. There's not too many people have done it. And uh, it, except for the times away from home, we spent about eight months a year at sea. And uh, so Mother Bear didn't see very much of us. <laughs> but um, uh, after I left the Navy, um, I made it into Qantas, uh, flew as a, a co-pilot on uh, 707s and then ultimately as a captain on 747s. Okay. And uh, uh, I retired from Qantas in, 19, in uh, 1990 and uh, to try and make a bit more money I went to Singapore Airlines and flew with them until 1994. That's a very extensive career and unusual in many ways. Can we come back to the naval flying yeah. just just for a moment then? So when you were in the navy, you flew gannets. Uh, why don't you tell us? Like you've said that it was interesting to take off and fun with the catapult and so on, which which with a smile on your face. But honestly, it's uh, it's not the sort of thing that just you would, the faint-hearted would do. I imagine. <laughs> Did you have any difficult experiences with that or any problems? Well, I did have one in 1963 where uh, uh, <clears throat> I was uh, lined up on the catapult and uh, just as the catapult fired, uh, one of my engines blew up. And uh, strangely enough, the Navy didn't train you very much for these sort of emergencies. So um, here I was with a, a engine pouring out smoke and I didn't realise it was also pouring uh, flames out the uh, back of the jet pipe and uh, um, what they call a JPT warning bell ringing in my ear just to... <laughs> What's that stand for? Jet pipe temperature. Okay. And uh, of course the engine was overheating mm -hmm. very badly. Anyway, we didn't make it. We made it about a mile ahead of the ship and went into the water and... Uh, uh, I'd been told that the gannet ditched quite well, so I was unaware or unprepared for this hitting a brick wall feeling mm. when we hit the water. And uh, I was very lucky to get out, in fact. Uh, my centre seat observer helped me uh, get the canopy off, and um, I didn't even get out of the aeroplane. It sank. And <laughs> but all three of you were recovered? Oh, yes, all three of us okay. got out. Uh, they, they film uh, all the launches and landings on a carrier and uh, the film showed that my backseat observer uh, leapt out as soon as the aeroplane stopped, raced down the wing inflating his dinghy and jumped it and didn't even get his feet wet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean that's takeoff. but as a civilian watching this thing, the, to me the landing on a carrier seems to be the most fraught experience anyone could have and yet it's done routinely what's what's landing on a carrier like well of course it's it's totally different when you do it the first time they it's all a diy thing nobody's going to teach you how to land on an aircraft carrier <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you've done a lot of practice they had a thing on the on the ship that they called a mirror uh, landing aid which was a, a big mirror with lights and so on that showed you your approach slope and uh, so you used to practice doing those on the airfield until you, you know, okay. um, got good at it. When you first went out, the carrier looked about the size of a postage stamp. <laughs> <laughs> and you had no idea what, uh, what it was going to feel like. 
Now, in the Navy, they don't like the carrier into wind for very long, so all launches and landings are done at 30 second intervals. Okay. Uh, they told us that nobody was going to get near the ship on their first approach. We were all pilots. We knew that we were going to be the ones yeah, that did. Of course, yes. <laughs> and, of course, we didn't. <laughs> uh, you'd then go round and do a, you know, another circuit. Yeah. Now, a very, very tight circuits. You, you flew your circuit at 400 feet, mm. and you used to actually turn in towards the ship before you'd passed it. Wow. <laughs> uh, so it was a, a very tight little turn around and a very short straightaway before you caught the wires. And um, anyway, on my fourth go, uh, the, the signal came up to put my hook down. Now, this meant that when I landed, I was hopefully going to catch a wire. Yep. And God knows what my pulse rate was. <laughs> Because you know, um, you, yeah. you don't get scared, but you get very apprehensive. And part of it, of course, is the fact that uh, you don't want to foul it up. Mm. And uh, and then you've got somebody thirty seconds behind you, and ah. you've got to clear the the area and get out of their road before they land. Yeah. So it, um, it was a fair amount of pressure. <laughs> And if you miss the wire, you don't go around. You, you yeah, go yeah. off the end of the... No, well, no, or you no, can no. actually continue. No, the, the, uh, Melbourne had what they called an angled deck. The, the landing area was sort of angled slightly across the deck. So if you missed a wire, you just put on power and went around okay. again. Okay. Now, in the gannet, uh, that was very, very effective because the engine's constant sped at 15,000 RPM. Wow. Which meant that as soon as you put throttle on you got immediate power you, you know it was absolutely uh instantaneous uh so um you know you just go around and have another bash everyone i've spoken to so far who's had flying experience talks with great affection about you know their experiences their aircraft the oh, crews as well but yeah. the aircraft themselves uh, it sounds to me that like you have a a real affection for the gannet I couldn't say I was all, had all that much of an affection for a gannet, but it was in fact a, a great aircraft to fly. It was very light on the controls, extremely controllable. Incredible as it may seem, you could do pretty good aerobatics in a gannet. Wow. <laughs> you know, loops and rolls and all that sort of stuff. Really? Yeah. You look at it and you don't think it could do anything much at all just well, by the look of it, do you? It was an incredibly fast aircraft in wow. a dive. Uh, its maximum diving speed was 340 knots mm. and uh, we used to do uh, rocket dives in the Navy uh, where you'd, you'd get a bunch of rockets on board and you'd fire them one at a time to a target out in Jarvis Bay and um, you know at the bottom of the rocket dive you were doing upwards of 300 knots and you pulled about 5G as mm. you, you pulled out of the dive so uh, it was a, a very much more capable aircraft than people give it credit for. 859 that we have here is currently in a very sad state. It's up in, the, in, the, in an enclosed area at the back of the property. Uh, was it damaged or is it, is it what's, what's the future for this aircraft, do you think? Well, I was told that it was full of corrosion. However, I've done a survey on the thing and it's not. Um, in point of fact... Uh, it's hard to believe that a, something as strong as a gannet 
could have uh, all that many problems standing stationary in a, a static display museum uh, because um, it really was the strongest aeroplane I've ever flown. Um, you know, most, most aircraft, if you, you're shooting an approach, um, you'll be doing, going down at about uh, five or 600 feet a minute. The Gannett was uh, certified to hit the deck at 1,200 feet a minute, wow. <laughs> working on the assumption that you might be going down, the de- deck might be coming up. <laughs> yes. Because one of, one of the things that, uh, of course, y- you have to take into account is the ship could get quite frisky. Um, we could operate if the uh, landing area was going up and down less than 50 feet and the ship was rolling less than 8 degrees. And believe me, that's frisky. <laughs> I was going to ask you what's more of a challenge, the size of the deck or the fact that it's moving? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact of the matter was the Melbourne was a tiny aircraft carrier and not particularly fast. Um, I landed on a uh, US Essex class carrier called Yorktown at one stage of the game and uh, not only did the flight deck look like real estate but the <laughs> ship was going so fast I wasn't sure I was going to catch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative, isn't it? Picture yourself strapped into the pilot seat of an F-111 strike aircraft. Introducing... The Queensland Air Museum's Ultimate F-111 Experience. Spend a couple of hours with our guides, RAAF Air Vice Marshal retired David Dunlop and Air Commodore retired Peter Grouder, who will take you through the experience in a clear, easy to understand and highly enjoyable manner. After a mission briefing, you'll be introduced to the aircraft features and controls before strapping into the cockpit to go through your checklist procedures. Bookings are restricted to a maximum of two people in a group, so personal attention is assured. The ultimate F-111 experience. Costs and booking details are available on the Queensland Air Museum website. We've moved across into Hangar 2 and we're standing under the Westland Wessex helicopter, which is a very impressive looking helicopter. So Noel, tell us about this aircraft. The uh, Wessex was um, obtained by the Australian Navy in 1963 as an anti-submarine aircraft. And uh, I found myself in a situation where I got dragged screaming onto flying helicopters, which I didn't really want to do. Uh, I've learnt to fly helicopters on a very, very uh, unpleasant machine called a Bristol Sycamore, uh, which made a spirited attempt to kill me. (laughs) There have been a number of attempts on your life over the years, haven't there? (laughs) No, this one really was. We lost the tail rotor and uh, spun into the ground and rolled down a hill and burst into flames. So uh, uh, that was... uh, a fairly anxious moment. <laughs> and yet here you are, well done. Uh, and your, co- your, your passenger, your, your co-pilot was OK? No, 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 I was under instruction. Um, a guy called Mike Asprey was my instructor. And, uh, uh, but we were both sort of fighting uh, a little bit. 
to um, keep this thing under control. Anyway, uh, we walked out of it. Actually, we ran out of it because it was a grass, dry grass field and we didn't want to get burned by the blasted grass fire. <laughs> See, we didn't have time to send out a mayday call, so uh, Nara didn't actually... Uh, uh, know that we were in trouble until they could see the f- smoke from the yeah, fire. Okay. Anyway, so I was less than enthusiastic about going to the Westland Wessex and uh, I was amazed to find how pleasant an aircraft it was. Yeah. It was a, it's a big aircraft as yeah. you can see and uh, it's powered by a single uh, gazelle gas turbine engine and you'd swear to God that this tiny little engine wouldn't do anything for it. But in fact, it was an extremely powerful aircraft, uh, very manoeuvrable, extremely light on the controls, and it had the ability to be able to operate uh, in an absolutely no-visibility environment. Dense fog, black night, you could still fly the Wessex. Now, it was uh, obtained as an anti-submarine aircraft, although it had the capability for carrying troops and, uh, you know, being used in um, emergency situations. But what we used to do, uh, we'd fly the aircraft down to a 30-foot hover, uh, 30 feet above the water, and we'd then drop this sonar ball down into the water and we'd ping around and look for submarines. So this is not a sonar boy, this is, a, this is not something that you drop? No, no, no. You ha- it's not you something can... you drop. This was inside the aircraft. Yeah. And, uh, and it's attached by a long cable. Uh, uh, so what no, sort of... 90 foot of cable. 90 foot, okay. Yeah, so we could hover at 30 feet and put 60 feet under the water. Okay. Yep. Uh, and it was the first time the submarine got scared of us. Because submarines know where all the surface ships are. They use their passive sonar and they know exactly where all the surface ships are. They didn't know where we were going next. Because once we pulled the ball up, we were flying and we'd, you know, go somewhere else and pop it in again. So uh, we were, uh, you know, a bit of a headache for uh, submarines. And uh, it turned out to be uh, a less... Um, unpleasant experience than I expected. Towards the end of my naval career I uh, uh, flew these things off the Sydney going up to Vietnam. So the Sydney was the Melbourne sister ship? The Sydney was the same ship, uh, the earlier one, uh, what they call a straight deck carrier instead of an angle deck carrier. Now we've talked about landing a gannet and taking off uh, from carriers, what's the difference with helicopters? Are they 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 would seem simpler and and safer? Is that correct? Ah, you know, I mean, let's face it, you can stop in a helicopter. Yeah. Um, it wasn't as easy as I thought it might be, uh, because uh, to get you close to the refueling points and the starting points, etc., um, they only had a, a relatively small circle that you had to get your right hand wheel into. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't anywhere near in the same class as trying to get a, uh, a fixed-wing aircraft on board the ship. So you flew Wessexes in Vietnam, did you say? No, I didn't. I flew them up to Vietnam and back again. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, I managed, managed to avoid getting shot at. Okay. <laughs> but you say it was a, a lovely thing to fly and, and surprisingly enjoyable to fly. Yeah. What was the crew? We carried a crew of four, uh, two pilots because it was very, very intense 
flying operation, particularly when you're in, on instrument conditions, mm-hmm. you know, pitch black night, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you really needed two pilots to be able to operate. And we had a, a, an observer to do the navigation and a uh, sonar operator to work the sonar. Uh, when, when we were chasing submarines, everybody was in it. Uh, we could hear the, uh, uh, the sonar pings and the returns, and uh, uh, there's a lot of things in the water that look like submarines. <laughs> so, so after you've got a contact, the next thing is to try and figure out whether you've really got a submarine. Okay. <laughs> Or a whale, or a, or a shipping container, or shoal of fish. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, um, a knuckle in the water caused by a ship turning. Uh, a rock. We had a had a rock just off the uh, coast of Nara, and of course there's about a four knot set down the coast. So we'd drop the new uh, sonar operators into the water near this thing, and they they'd track this four knot rock. <laughs> Okay, and so we uh, this particular Wessex, did you fly this one? I've flown every Wessex the Navy had, so yeah, okay. I've flown this one. Okay. Mm. Well, look, it's been great talking to you, Noel, and I know there's so much more we can talk about. If, uh, if somebody comes down to the Queensland Air Museum and they'd like to see you, what days are you normally here as a guide? Uh, usually um, uh, Saturday, Fridays and Saturdays. Okay. But and I do get here on, you know, Wednesdays as well because I... I try and get involved with the maintenance as well as the guiding bit. And it's great to have a Navy voice in, in, in amongst the, the many very wonderful and expert voices of our guides. And uh, if so, if somebody has a particular interest in Navy, Navy flying, uh, anti-submarine warfare, then uh, maybe on a Friday or a Saturday you could come down here and uh, look for Noel. Our guides don't expect to be paid. They will not accept payment. They are here as volunteers and they want to help you make your visit as good as possible. So I'm sure, Noel, uh, you'd be happy to see anybody who has any questions at all. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And thank you so much for talking to me today. Ah, you're very welcome. So that's Noel Dennett, Queensland Air Museum guide and volunteer. Let me remind you that our guides are volunteers and are there to help make your visit as enjoyable and informative as possible. They do not expect and will not accept payment or tips. You can, of course, make a contribution or a donation to the QAM if you've had a very enjoyable and useful visit. They are on duty every day, sometimes one, sometimes two, sometimes three of them, and they like nothing more than to help you to get the most out of your visit. They are a wealth of information with great personal stories to tell from many different backgrounds, and I know you'll enjoy meeting up with them. So that's our episode. My name is Gary Hills. Thank you for listening. Don't forget the QAM is open from 10am till 4pm every day of the year, except Christmas Day and Easter Friday. Come and see us soon. Bye for now.